Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. It's good to be with you. My guest this week is Peter Marullo, lead singer of the band Protagonist, and he's also my manager. So let's get it. This conversation was long overdue, according to both of us, but particularly him. Right, Pete? I've got it. Before we go any further, this podcast is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast. The best way to support this podcast now is to stream the new Divided Heaven record, Oblivion, wherever you stream music. That's incredibly helpful. Put it on a playlist, share it with your friends, and or go to dividedheaven.com and order a copy of the record on actual record, on wax, baby, or on CD, dividedheaven.com. You'll see links for both the U.S. and European labels where you can get yourself a copy, which should be not too much longer into the near future. And... Also, we want to thank punknews.org for partnering with the Berman Hour podcast to do this Into Oblivion series for the last few months. So thanks again to our booze at punknews.org. So, me and my friend Peter Marullo chopping it up. I hope you all enjoy this conversation. Let's go. All right, I, I want to set a stage for a conversation that I think we had probably 10 months ago. Okay. I said, hey, the new Divided Heaven record is going to be called IV, which is works on two levels, not very deep, right? But it's the Roman numeral four, and it's also the, you know, the intravenous, you know, line. And it's, you know, the record's about sickness and figurative and literal ways. And I said, I think I want to call the record Oblivion for all these reasons. Plus, IV is within the word Oblivion. And you said, oh, yeah, it's just like Phantasm Four, Oblivion. And I was like, oh, shit. I should have known that. (laughs) (laughs) But I swear, I didn't fucking know that. I hope you believe me. I believe you. And now I can safely say that... Phantasm Four is the best of the four sequels. One through five. One is obviously the best. The original is obviously the best. But four harkens back to one in a lot of ways that I think is is really interesting. Can can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because are they flashbacks or are they like was it just extra footage and a way to kind of I don't know milk you know, that a little bit more? What, what's up with that? Um, yeah. So when Don Coscarelli finished. I mean, really, when he finished Phantasm 2, they had this idea of having this giant scoped, post-apocalyptic Phantasm film. And after Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino won the Academy Award for Pulp Fiction, they won it for Best Screenplay, Roger Avery set out to write that vision for Phantasm 1999. And they tried to get that off the ground for a couple years, but they needed a much bigger budget than Phantasm was sort of allowed in the filmmaking community. I think they needed like seven to 13 million. And uh, so, and they weren't worth that. I mean, the highest budget Phantasm is Phantasm two. And that's a $3 million film. 
Oh, okay. And that's three million dollars in nineteen eighty-eight. So yeah, they've been spaced out a lot. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think one is three hundred thousand. Two's three million. Three is about one point five. Four is like six hundred thousand, and five is like a hundred fifty thousand. Wow, that's it. Yeah, and that's not adjusted or whatever for inflation. Because when did five come out? Two thousand sixteen, fifteen. Yeah, two thousand sixteen. And it was only a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, half of the movie was filmed for a webisode series that never got picked up by anybody. Yeah. So they had about a half hour of footage or 45 minutes of footage and said, okay, like we have half of a movie here, which is, you know, brings me back to Phantasm 4, Phantasm Oblivion. I know Don had gotten a call from, I think, an old MGM film lab or, or some film lab that had a bunch of Phantasm canisters and said, you know, the lab's closing tomorrow. You need to come pick up your stuff. Mm-hmm. So he went down and picked it up. And when he shot Phantasm, they didn't really know the direction that it was going to go in. So there's a bunch of other stuff they filmed for the original Phantasm that's like Mike and his aunt, and his aunt is played by the same lady who plays the fortune teller. The brother Jody works at the bank that his parents had left him when they died. So he's like working at the bank with his girlfriend. There's all these kind of little subplots in the movie. So when they went to make Phantasm 4, which I think, I don't know this for sure, but I always kind of imagine they weren't able to get 1999 off the ground, so they go, they make 4 in hopes that 4 will kind of drum up some hype and keep it relevant and then be able to make 1999. Yeah. But with that being said, they already had, you know, using the Phantasm 1 footage, they already had like a third of the movie shot. So for independent filmmaking purposes... They were able to go out, raise money, shoot stuff for the film, and already have like 15 minutes ready to go. Got it. So for those just tuning in, Peter Marullo, best friend, manager, lead singer of the band protagonist, and we're talking about Phantasm. So your dad introduced you to the original Phantasm at a too early age of three years old. Yeah, summer of 1987. I was three. And since then, it's just that's been your bag. It's quite niche. Like, how big is the Phantasm community? It's bigger than you would think. It's one of those movies that pre-internet, a lot of people, you know, it was obscure to a lot of people. It was like their movie. And then, you know, around the, I mean, really the birth of the internet as we know it, uh, Phantasm had a website in 1995, which kind of, you know, sourced and brought together a community. Um, There was a message board early on in 1995 where people would leave comments, their thoughts on Phantasm 3, which then directly played into its effect on Phantasm 4, having like a darker, more serious tone and a less comedic vibe. So yeah, I mean, Phantasm is my jam. I got posters and all kinds of memorabilia all over the place. And Yeah, there was a great uh, t-shirt and poster that was the Protasm, and it was all of us from the band and it had movie credits. It was set out to be a movie poster, but it was for protagonist for the, for the band. Right. Does the Phantasm legacy or canon work its way into your lyric writing? Yeah, I mean, it definitely has. It's definitely like, I mean, it sounds cheesy saying like, oh, this horror movie's an inspiration, but obviously it's, you know, uh, a big part of just the journey of my life. It's sort of always been there. Yeah. So it definitely like works its way into 
songs early on and then songs as of recent, you know? Interesting. Something you said struck a chord with me a few moments ago where you said that when they filmed the first Phantasm, they didn't know where it was going, so there were a lot of plot lines didn't really go anywhere or didn't really have destination. And when you watch the movie, there's a lot of discontinuity. Isn't that the right word? Where you think there's... Like things are established and understood. It's the kind of thing where whether you have a good attention span or not, you kind of have to ask an expert or somebody who's seen the movie before because things don't kind of necessarily make sense. And that thread of, I'll call it a a clever and delightful lack of cohesion in the plot is something that exists throughout all five films. Is Was there any different voice or writer or director or, or vibe that anyone tried to inject any of the later movies to make them a little bit more seamless and a little bit more point A to point B direct plot? Well, you touch upon like the, uh, I think you said discontinuity of the film. It has a kind of a jarring feel, which plays into the fact that it's this dreamlike surreal horror film. That's the reason is because there's so much, there was so much shot and initially assembled for the movie. Didn't necessarily work. I mean, they end up killing the tall man like, five or six times in the original cut, you know? But I think that kind of works to its advantage, you know, because, so you were growing up on that. I loved the Nightmare on Elm Street series. They try to just kind of do these readaptations of ideas and plot lines or potential loopholes or whatever, but it's, everything is pretty like tightly knit. And then a supernatural phenomenon that keeps those uh, horror protagonists coming back, right? No pun intended <laughs> on that. But with Phantasm, I feel like enough to spark the imagination of somebody, but because it's so open-ended, it just leaves you in a place where you have to think about it and kind of stew on what the fuck it all means. Yeah, and I mean, I love that movie. So I, I love when movies aren't, you know, spoon-fed, and I think a lot of movies nowadays have to be, you know, like those Marvel, DC Comics movies, you know, I go and see those movies, but... I always touch upon the fact that I don't really retain all of them. There's so much going on. There's so many characters and they're very, you know, I mean, they're very, I think cut and dry for on purpose because they Mm -hmm. appeal to like a mainstream audience. I mean, I think that's the beauty of a phantasm is it keeps you wondering, guessing, theorizing. And it's a pretty rare horror movie where, I mean, the, you know, the good guy loses at the end of the movie. And if you think about that and, your sort of classic horror films, you know, it's the, the monster always dies or, you know, the, the good guy triumphs somehow. And, and you know, the majority of the Phantasm movies, like the, the good guy never really triumphs. I think Phantasm is a really great well for inspiration, for aesthetic vibe, for artistic vibe, for fonts. <laughs> you know, uh, everything. It's, it, once, once you helped me realize that I had stumbled across this happy accident, I realized that, you know, subtle things in the artwork could be tweaked to kind of reflect a little bit of a phantasm. Well, and, you know, you asked if it's like serves as an inspiration. And I mean, even just beyond like a creative aspect of inspiring lyrics or artwork or whatever, you know, is a very DIY filmmaking method that they applied to that film. You know, they rented cameras on Friday because you would be able to keep them over the weekend, but only get charged for the Friday. So they would rent them out on Friday, shoot stuff over Saturday and Sunday 
return the cameras and people would go back to their lives during the week and they would sit and try to assemble this movie. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they shot that movie, I believe, in 1977. They ended up, I think, sh- coming up with an ending about a year or so later in 78 and kind of assembling their first cut or two and then released it in uh, spring of 79 where it kind of did the whole festival thing and then really just booked at drive-ins and made its way across the country, sometimes on double features with different movies like The Fog or Don't Go in the House and... I mean, to me, that's very punk rock. That's how we've had to do a lot of things as, you know, bandmates together. And sure, it, it makes me think of, of the record, and that's not even in a cheesy way, but how you kind of had these elements of the record floating around with different producers, different hard drives, coming up with creative ways to, to finish it. And I think it really plays into that, you know? Yeah, it wasn't really until a, a few months ago that I, I put the needle on the test press and listen to the record front to back, it was punctuated. Like, until then, it, it just wasn't. And yeah. that's another thing that kind of... And something else, it's interesting that how you use Phantasm. It's a vibe. In the same way that Shout of the Devil, for me, that record is a vibe. You know, if I dive really into it, like, are the lyrics that good? Yeah, some of them, you know, but it's kind of cheesy. If you dive into the, the script of Phantasm, like, is it really that... You know, no, it's, it's kind of cheesy and trite in, in some ways. Vibe of how everything looks, the artwork for the posters and the promotional material, certainly with both the, the Motley Crue record and the movie, the music is absolutely fantastic and just sets, you know, it fucking gives you chills, but it just kind of sets you into that that vibe. I love it. It's, it's also when I meet, you know, I come across these people. I mean, I've met some of my closest friends through Phantasm, and when I come across people and they're like, oh, you like horror movies, like what's your favorite, you know, what's your favorite horror movie or what, what's your favorite movie in general? And I throw a phantasm, I often get like, oh, you're a phantasm fan. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Here yeah. we go. <laughs> Have you always had a morbid curiosity? Because I, I want to topically move from phantasm to this tombstone tourista that you've been doing on your Instagram, but you're going to these colonial fucking graveyards and shooting shit, not to make it look spooky. You're really just trying to capture the vibe of it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think graveyards and cemeteries often get sort of misinterpreted. I mean, and this is even me, you know, you know, when you, someone you might run into says they live across from a cemetery. I used to be like, Oh, you live across from a cemetery. But I find cemeteries and graveyards to be the most peaceful places. And that's not even in like a jokingly funny way because there's like nobody there to bother you or whatever. You know, I remember walking through the one down the street from me now in Beverly, like right after I moved here, like summer 2020, like in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, having my mask on, but then kind of taking my mask off and being like, should I, you know, keep my mask on? But I'm like outside in this massive cemetery with nobody there. Yeah. And I remember just like saying to myself, like, eh, I don't think anybody here minds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these fools are already dead anyway. <laughs> but I mean... I would say I've always been drawn to dark movies and, you know, dark music. Like, I've always liked, I guess, new wave and post-punk and dark wave, but I, I never knew it as its own genre when I first got into it. Yeah. 
it was just like finding songs that like, like there's gotta be other songs that sound like, you know, the killing joke, the eighties or echo and the bunny men, the killing moon. Like there's gotta be other stuff out there. And then, you know, as you start to do deep dives, you find out that there's like, you know, whole genres that are sort of devoted to that sound. Yeah. I'm picking up on a, on a theme here because, because that stuff, that dark wave stuff, it's just a vibe. Vibe. Because I know that a lot of the reels that you do on Instagram for Tombstone Tourist, Tourist is it Tombstone Tourista? Uh, Touristique. Touristique. If any, if there's any French listeners out there, you know, please uh, <laughs> feel free to correct me. <laughs> Je m'appelle Tombstone Tourista. Touristique. You put music to a lot of these reels. Do you listen to that music as you're in there walking around filming it? Are you not listening to music? What does Sonic? What role does Sonic play in, in this? As you're just in that vibe, I mean a, a huge, a huge role because I'm always listening to music when I go on walks through at least Central Cemetery, which is right around me. And you know, I kind of came up with a concept of a, a covers project that we've been working on. That's like you know, coming together piece by piece, but it's you know, sort of in the midst of uh, dealing with you know, middle of a pandemic you know, moving out of the house that I shared with a former partner and like a kind of elongated post breakup kind of Mm -hmm. era of my life. And, you know, music played a huge part in that, in the coverage project that, you know, we've slowly been kind of conjuring up and working on and it all tells a story. So I think it's like super, super important with that stuff. And, you know, a lot of the songs I pick out for the, the reels on Instagram and the TikToks, I mean, it tends to be like dark, you know, new wave, dark rock or, you know, somber because that's what just fits the aesthetic the most, mm-hmm. you know, and I put a lot of care into those, even though they're just shot on my iPhone or whatever. You know, I still think there are these little kind of snippets of uh, or little documents of what I enjoy to do. You know? What dark wave or new wave bands or post-punk bands do you really gravitate towards? Echo and the Bunnymen. I love a lot of The Cure, The Smiths. I like a lot of the newer synthwave stuff, um, the Midnight, Jesse Fry, Time Cop, nineteen eighty three. Occasionally, I get to walk through Central Cemetery when it's super um, invaded by fog. Basically, mm-hmm. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah. And I think my best reel was using the Midnight America Online and putting it to those images. It just hits the vibe. It's all. Literally, that is all vibe. Kind of brings you or transports you to just another state of mind, another place. So I'm not the only act that you manage anymore, which is great. Who else are you working with at this point? I work with a band that's Boston and New York based called Job Creators. They're like a psychedelic two-piece math rock band, I I guess is what you call them. They're kind of hard to throw into one genre, but they're really fun visuals play a huge part of their set they usually have a you know a screen behind them and a projector blasting on all these you know curated visuals that are you know synchronized to the songs i help manage a rapper up here by the name of zafir who's a longtime friend and confidant he has a bunch of new music coming out i manage my friend herman who you know obviously who's uh, filled in for protagonist before his a uh, project called Disla, which is spelled D-S-L-A. And that's because right. there's quite a few Dislas out there, so we had to get creative. <laughs> <laughs> Just remove that first vowel, and you'll be fine. Was it a necessity 
geared you towards being in a management position for artists or was it a desire? That's a good question. I think it's both really when you think about it. I mean, I feel like I've managed protagonist, even though I've never really considered myself the manager of protagonist. But I think that's what, you know, when you strip the the job that I do, that's what it is. You know what I mean? And I think that's something that bands don't talk about a lot. We can talk about this off air about who I'm <laughs> referring to specifically. But I think a lot of the bands that we know, they have a manager that is actually one of the bandmates. It's just one guy does merch, one guy does the bulk of the songwriting. One guy maybe has the art aesthetic and the other guy does the management, which is just ideas and the finances and, and all of that stuff, which is a necessary thing. Sometimes it can be kind of boring and administrative, but I mean, do you find a balance in management between the administrative stuff and being creative on behalf of who you're representing? Yeah. You know, I think since it's mostly been from the position of helping out people I know, that there is less pressure to perform, but it's sort of like, let's set out to achieve some stuff and get some cool stuff done. Yeah. It's been an interesting ride for us because I mean, first and foremost, we're, we're friends, obviously. Secondly, I think our working relationship in this capacity. And then third as bandmates. And the only reason I would put that at the bottom is not because it's not significant, just because it, it doesn't happen as much as we all would like it to happen. So it's rare that we're in that space where we have to kind of think in terms of that communal art space within the protagonist world. Yeah, you know, I think one of the tough things about it is I know what you mean, but my brain is always there 24-7. So it, it, I, right. at first I almost take it as an insult of like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Like Johnny Drama and Entourage when he goes like, you know, the guy's like, Johnny, you've been out of the game a long time. It's going to be, it's going to be hard to get you back in. And he goes, I am the fucking game, pal. <laughs> That's how I feel right now. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to, uh, you know, I didn't mean to insult you, Pete. <laughs> you know, your brother's going to hear this part of the interview and just go, hmm. Mm. He's going to point that nasty ass finger <laughs> at that, at, at that, that Mr. Baby. How I started managing you is we were on the phone in 2010. We were talking, just catching up. And I was like, you should come out to Boston. And you said a line that was like, dude, like I'm not going to be able to fly anywhere for a while. Like I'm just kind of doing my thing out here. Then I remember after the phone call, it must've kind of planted a seed in your head. Cause you were like, you know, I was actually looking up tickets to Boston. I think I might fly out. September 10th to the 15th or something like that. And it was on that trip where we were in Marblehead on the beach walking and talking. And I was telling you like, okay, for Divided Heaven, I guess to set the stage for the listeners, you had recorded a debut album. You had been trying to figure out what to do with it. It had been mixed and mastered. And I was kind of trying to steer you in the right direction of like, well, this is what I would do if I were you. And like, if I was managing you, this is what I would be doing. And I remember you said yeah. on the beach, well, you should manage me. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. And I think you were like, no, that's it. Like, you're going to manage me. I was like, yeah. all right, <laughs> let's set out to do some shit. <laughs> Strong arm to you into it. But yeah, it's been, I was going to, here's my point that I forgot was going to be that it's been an interesting ride in that the things that you've landed for Divided Heaven have been pretty amazing. But it's it's weird to think 
back to that moment in 2010 when we were just in Marblehead, Massachusetts, trying to figure out what the fuck to do with an acoustic singer-songwriter record and how to make it make a splash. But I, I think we succeeded. That was the lesson from that. It was just like taking the moment of reprieve, pausing, and as opposed to just throwing the record up on MySpace or whatever the hell existed at that point, like think a little wiser about it. Like what what could we do that could be a little bit different? I mean, I think it's that DIY punk mentality that I, I carry with me with everything, but I'm constantly sort of in problem solving mode. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you need a video. Like, how should we get a video? Oh, like, I know the director of that video is going to be out in LA and has a eight hour layover. Like, all right, that's time for a music video, you know? Yeah. Just yeah. kind of putting the right pieces together at the right, right moments. You know, see, you know, it always seeming like it's going to be hard to find a label because I think, I think in our heads it's it's harder to kind of land the label. There's a little more mystique around it than actually exists. And I think I I just emailed the No Panic guy, right? I think so, but that's been something that's kind of happened every release where we kind of get ready for things and we think, what do we want to do this time that's different than what we did? Like right. with all due respect to Adam at Satan or Vinny at Paper and Plastic or Rob at Wiretap, it's like, you know, when we were sitting on Oblivion, we were thinking, what can we do different this time? And so I think that's kind of been the thread throughout this whole artist management working relationship we have. Safe space and that freedom to kind of work out ideas that maybe, you know, aren't so good either as well. Like releasing a digital only European exclusive EP in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> with a label that somehow only released it in Cambodia. That, that was definitely against my wishes. All right, I want to ask you about some protagonist stuff. If you had to look back at all of the protagonist records, which one feels the most significant and which one do you feel captures your band in the most pure form? The Chronicle. Yeah. Well, why do you say The Chronicle? Because I thought you were going to have a different answer. The Chronicle was recorded at a time when everything seemed up in the air. My brother had moved away to college. Brian was moving away to Gainesville. Like the finished product of what it sounds like is exactly what it sounded like before it was recorded. It's exactly how it lived in my head. Yeah. And I just thought it would be such a, I don't mean this in a cheesy way, but like a tragedy for people to not hear what I was hearing in my head. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, obsessed over it and really i you know speak of like taking the reins of a manager i mean i we didn't have a steady drummer at the time so i went back to our our former drummer who had been out of the band for like three years but it you know filled in had recorded other stuff at that point but i said hey man i want to record a record are you down to do drums and he was like yep that's jeffy scott yep i thought you were gonna say states because it felt like the first time y'all were venturing out on your own as fully fledged adults. Not that you weren't adults when we were in Hoboken and making Hope and Rage in 2003, but in, I don't know. In my mind, we, we were all kids then. I, I mean, in, in respect, we, we really were. I mean, yeah. you and John were like, what, 21 at the time? I was. I think I was 20. I mean, I was what? I was 18. Brian yeah. was 17 at the time. Yeah, so, so 
Seth, who was there, I think was 16 at the time. So, I mean, we legitimately were kids, you know? I would I would have picked states, and I thought you were going to say states. I think I get why you're saying states, and it's like I don't disagree with you. I just feel like the Chronicle is almost like Peter's last stand, and if I had to be buried with one of the records, it would have to be the Chronicle. Now, maybe if I'm putting on protagonists for somebody who's never heard it, I'd probably be putting on states or Gene Jackets and Duke. So I, I would say that states best represents protagonist because – of you guys getting your trailer stolen, losing all your gear before you even, you know, <laughs> loaded anything into the recording studio in Tulsa. But I also feel like I know that some of the personnel you worked with recording Hope and Rage made that recording experience and the mixing experience not ideal. I do know how much of a clusterfuck recording the Chronicle was because I was there for a number of the sessions. And not only was the recording a clusterfuck, the mixing and remixing and the remixing again, it was states. So it was like everything was kind of captured and released all within the shortest amount of time. Not to mention that despite that your trailer was stolen, y'all recorded it in what, like four or five days, if that? I mean, it probably ended up being a little bit longer because Stefan's wife, Nat, had to be rushed to the hospital. So there was like all kinds of just like, stuff happening that week yeah. it's a bizarre week yeah. i think we were slated to be in there for like five days and we probably ended up being there like a week and a half in a scenario where you were purposefully out of your element losing your trailer i mean that's out of your element to the 10th power that should not have happened right that that was not good but you know you're in tulsa like you're in no man's land essentially and you're recording with a you know, a fucking legend in Stefan Egerton. And I thought, I thought that he captured a, uh, an urgency of the band that has not, was not captured before and has not been captured since. Yeah, I mean, I feel like States in many ways is us at our, our tightest form. And I mean, you know, beyond the stuff that hindered the recording, I mean, the recording itself was smooth and fun. I mean, it, it wasn't a bad vibe. We were all having like a great time, you know? In terms of producing, it was more about the performance than, like, you know, the songs didn't go through any changes of, like, structure. Like, those songs, the songs that we went into record are the songs we recorded. But he really showed us and shed light on, like, how to perform and be in time with each other as opposed to being in time with yourself. And that's something we would always kind of, you know throw at each other in like a band rehearsal like hey you, you were off timing or you're off timing or like i'm playing this on time but you're not in timing and he kind of showed us like if you're not playing in time or you're not playing in time like you're not in time with each other mm-hmm. and that's such a, a valuable just like a very short one sentence line that's like stuck with me stuck with me since was that the first time that you remember everybody recording to a metronome yeah i think it was right yeah yeah and you can tell because that record has a power that is uh, a marching power, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's probably why in my brain it's like us at our tightest form. Not, not that we haven't recorded with a metronome after that. We, we have, and, you know, you kind of bring all those things you learn from one session and, you know, bringing it into the other. But even, you know, when I was doing vocals, and I did vocals very quick on that on that recording, it's probably one of the only recordings we've ever done where – I didn't have a chance to go back and do pickups, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, even 2010 is a lot different than now in terms of 
you can you do know, shit at home now and send. Yeah, I can do shit at home and send it and, and be fine. But at the time, it was like this is where we're doing it. This is, you know, you have this amount of time to do it. And he just was so fun to work with and so easy. And he kept saying to me, you know, like you kind of have to. It was a uh, destination desolation. In fact, that those words in the song where it's like destination desolation. And I was probably singing it like destination desolation. And he was like, you know, kind of like Des Kadena and Black Flag. Do it like Des would do it. And I remember having the headphones on and looking through the glass and going, in Des we trust. So he was like, in Des we trust. I like that. And like wrote it on tape and put it on his uh, his mixing board. Yeah. I think we even put it in the liner notes. But that's another thing that like has stayed with me is just things like that, like delivery and timing. Pardon the meta follow-up question the four divided heaven records. And I guess you could count Pacific Avenue EP in there as well. What divided heaven record from a management standpoint, do you think most accurately represents divided heaven in the purest, most accurate form? Youngblood. Interesting. (laughs) I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite divided heaven record, but yeah, maybe the question is misleading with the pure. Because, I mean, Oblivion is definitely the dirtiest, is the nastiest, for sure. I think Oblivion has the best flow. Yeah, I think so, too. What are your thoughts on the length of records now? I, mean, I, think, Young, I think Youngblood and Cold War both have um, a couple too many songs. I, I'd probably nix two tracks off each. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you that on Cold War. I think I would leave Youngblood as is. I think that's a good point. I think 10 is kind of the sweet spot. I think 10 is perfect. You know, if you remember, a lot of those records in the 90s that punk bands were putting out were like 16 songs, 17 songs. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe going back to the boils, it makes sense if a lot of the songs are a minute and a half or two minutes. But I mean, some of those records are like long records of bands in the 90s. And I love the the 10, the 10 to 12 track is, to me is ideal. And I'm saying 12 because, like, let's say you might have, like, a minute-long intro kind of track or something like that. That's one of them. 10 is what I hope the next protagonist record has. I'll make sure it it does. That's the only thing I'm going to do. I'm not even going to play a single fucking note. I'm just going to have an EP roll where I make sure it does not go beyond 10 songs. (laughs) I need you, Jeff. I need you because we got a lot of songs. You got a lot of songs to sift through. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I love you, and uh, thanks for all your help for the past 10 years and beyond. 